0: Okay, I don't have a lot of time with you today, but I want to share with you another parable. This is what we're doing all summer long. And our purpose in sharing the parables is not to go, oh, that's a cute story. (laughs) Because let's be honest, many of the parables we read, that's exactly what we take away from them. Oh, that's a cute story. But the parables were never meant to be cute stories. And as we talked last week, I, I remember growing up thinking, The parable was so that people would better understand it, uh, a story that Jesus was telling by, by telling things that they were familiar with, which many people believe that's the point of the parables and why Jesus taught in parables, but that is not why Jesus said that he taught in parables. What Jesus said is that I teach in parables so that those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will see and will hear, but those who do not will miss it. Now, this is when we come and start studying the the red letters in Scripture, and we start looking at what Jesus literally taught. Jesus taught in a number of different ways. He was very direct at times, and He just said exactly what He meant to say, exactly the way He wanted it to be taken. We see much of that in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places and talking to people. At the same time, we see Him teaching in parables in which He has these secret messages that are meant for those that are seeking Christ. Last week, the parable that we looked at was the, the parable of the final judgment, and so we wanted to begin with kind of the end of the story and the reality that we, there are, the, all of us are going to be in one of two camps. We're either in or we're not in. We're either sheep or we're goats, and none of us want to be goats, right? Uh, unless you're a dugout, as Jonathan likes to tell people. So, um, but that is not what Jesus meant. By that if, does everybody know what goat means, right? All, right all our sports fans do the greatest of all time, yeah, it, no one humble ever said that about themselves, so anyways, um, but in that final judgment, there is a, tr- a hard truth for us, and that Jesus did not mince words to say, "You know, just do the best you can, but no he said you 're in or you 're not in so what I want to do today is I want to back up a little bit and I want to talk about what does it look like to be in. And over the next few weeks, you're going to see some parables that are more focused on that. As we look through many of the parables, there, there's over 40 parables that Jesus spoke with or spoke through. And as we look through those parables, he, he tends to have kind of subject matter that goes along with each one. Some is talking about the kingdom. Some, All of them are talking about the kingdom. Some are talking more about the coming kingdom and eternity. Some are talking more about salvation and how do you know Christ. Some are going to be talking about more uh, how do you live your life. There are certain parables that address really behavior, and so we'll be looking at those as well, and we we see the second coming of Christ in some of these parables. So we're going to talk about these throughout actually several weeks. We're going to go not through all 40, but we're going to go through several. Today, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the parable of the sower. It's one of, if not the most well-known parable that we talk about all the time and many of you if you've read this parable are going to think you know what it means and you're probably right but there's also a lot more that we can glean from this that i want us to do that so let's just read that parable together matthew chapter 13 i'm going to begin with the second part of verse 3 and then we'll move on from there matthew 13 says a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seeds fell along the path which is a common phrase that Jesus would say. Now, as we look through this, we need to understand that up to this point, this parable is going to mark a change in the way that Jesus spoke to people. Up until this point, being God's people meant you were within the nation of the Jews. You were born into Jewish families. You were his chosen people. And much of what John was saying was not in any way talking about going outside of this nation. But instead, he was just calling people to repent, to follow God, just as God had told them to do from the very beginning. And then as Jesus came in, Jesus' message was also one of repentance. Make me the number one thing in your life. Follow me. At this point, this is when he begins to change The idea of what it means to know God from being an observant Jew following the law to having a relationship with God through Christ. So this marks for him the beginning of the divergence away from understanding that you are made right with God by following the law. Well, I don't know about you. I'm glad that happened. I'm not real good at following the law. I mean, most laws I do, but there are some times that it's a, it's a struggle, isn't it? So as we look through this, I want you to understand that Jesus is literally changing our understanding of what it means to know him. Now, as we look through this parable... I want us to back up and just understand the context in which Jesus is giving this. This kind of introduces this change of teaching. In Mark 12, the very last few verses of Mark 12, this is what Jesus says immediately, I'm sorry, not Mark 12, Matthew 12, immediately before he begins with the parable of the sower. And it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So this change is beginning to take place, and Jesus is beginning to talk to them about understanding knowing God differently. Now, some of you coming from whatever backgrounds you come from have a different understanding of what it means to know God and to follow Him. For some, it means there are just different activities. I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I always believed if I was, I was a good kid, if I was a good Christian, then I did certain things, and the church was so kind as to put those things on the offering envelope. I don't know if you all grew up with this, but there was a little checklist there. And I had to bring my Bible. Check. Doing good, God. All right? I had to show up at church. Well, clearly I'm looking at a church envelope. I'm here. Check. You know, we'd get down to, I'd give my tithes today, and I'd be like, ooh, you know, two out of five is not bad. You know? I, and, and there would be other things. I shared my faith with someone this week. I'll do that next week. I'll do it twice next week. You know, and so I would go through this checklist. And some of us kind of grew up understanding our faith based on a checklist. Some of you have come from backgrounds and religious backgrounds that the checklist was severe. I mean, severe. And we've had from time to time people that will come because their church said, you know what? My church said I didn't check enough boxes, so they told me not to come back. And while that seems extreme, it does happen. And so as we look at this and we understand Jesus is beginning to shift the conversation away from check all your boxes to you are my mother and my brother and my sisters if you do the will of God. Now that sounds all good and great, but it still sounds like we are having to be in charge of this thing, right? i got to figure out what his will is, and then i got to do it. Then Jesus immediately launches into the parable of the sower, and I want us to look at this again as we look at what happens in the kind of the crowd, and this is one of the reasons that I think Jesus spoke in parables, this is what happens if we begin with verse one in chapter thirteen. After all of this happened, what we see is that people are curious about Jesus. Now, you can be curious about Jesus and not know Jesus. You can be curious about the Bible and, and not have any kind of relationship with Christ. This is what happened, and look at how Jesus responded, completely opposite of how we respond today in the church. That same day, Jesus went out to the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into the boat, and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and they took an offering and did some awesome worship songs, and then they went to lunch. Right? That's not what your verse says. Right? And keeping in mind that the parables are for those only that were really listening and were really hearing, instead of speaking to the large crowd in a direct way to try to get the message into the best, most relevant, easiest way to understand, he takes a different tact and instead he backs up and he speaks in something that he knows a lot of them will not get. And not only that, he does it intentionally. Now this ought to teach us something about Jesus, it ought to teach us something about the gospel, it ought to teach us something about following him, and that what we, when I kind of came up through seminary, one of the things that we constantly struggled with and that we would talk about and brainstorm about was how do we make the message understandable to anyone? How do we make it easy to become a, a follower of Jesus? How do we just communicate this in such a way that, you know what, anybody can get it if we could come up with the right illustration. And I remember a, a good friend of mine who's a, who's a, a senior pastor now, he, he was a youth pastor at the time, and, and a lot of us would brag about how good our illustrations were. And I, I remember we were sitting down at lunch, and he was like, man, I can share the gospel in, with anything. He said, you just give me an object and I can share the gospel with it. And I was like, okay, I can. Okay, how, about, how about belly button lint? And no joke, we sat in a nice restaurant eating dinner as he proclaimed the gospel through belly button lint. I was like, man, you are awesome. You are way better than me. But that's one of the things that we in the church try to do today is we try to come up with some way to make it easy for people to understand jesus when faced with a large crowd says ho ha, 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 let's back this truck up a little bit and begins speaking in a way that only the people that really wanted to know what he had to say would get it and the thing that makes parables so dangerous for us today is because we can get the gist of a story and miss the story jesus is trying to tell So let's go through this story, and let's look exactly about what he's doing and what he's saying, and rather than read everything over, I I just want to go over these four different soils that he talks about. Now, as we look at this big picture, you've probably heard, and, and it's not hard to figure out, there are four types of people that Jesus is talking about. Three of those do not have a relationship with him. One of them does. Now, we can say, well, that's the point of the story, and so I need to be the the one that does. But there's so much more that we can take from what he's trying to teach. The first type of soil that the seed falls on. Now, you have to keep in mind, I don't know, some of you I know in here are gardeners. I don't know how many of you are farmers or have ever farmed. But farming in Jesus' time was not farming in our time. I think it is amazing how efficient our farmers have become in creating rows of crops and making sure that seed only goes exactly where they want it to go and that it grows in exactly the right way that they can most efficiently gather it once it grows. But that is not the way farmers farmed in the time of Jesus. And so as we look at the sower, the sower is literally someone who would walk through a large field and they would cover the entire field with seed. It was not very efficient. There was a ton of waste, but they continued to do this. They would have an enormous bag. They would put it over their neck. It would be full of seed, and as they walked over the field, they would dig deeply in and grab as much seed as they could and then scatter it as far as it would go. Now, that's not incredibly efficient because it ends up going all over the place, and rather than making sure, well, this row has the exact right amount of seed, it Way too much seed, it may have not enough. Seed will go outside the bounds of the field, onto the road, and onto the path. It will go into the areas that's really good and conducive for growing, and it will go into other areas that it will not grow. But that's how they would farm. They all knew that this is how they would farm. They could see it. And I imagine it is very possible that Jesus told this parable because as he sat in the boat talking to people, there was probably a field and somebody was over there sowing, and Jesus was like, they can see him. And they can see him digging deep in and literally grabbing that handful of seed and just casting it out over large areas, just one by one, time after time, pass after pass until the whole field was covered. Now what we find is that Jesus begins to compare us as people... Our receptivity in order to know Christ to where this seed lands. And on the first one, it says some lands along the path. And so there's a path that's around the field to get in and out, and and their livestock would pull their wagons or whatever they needed to do in those areas. And because they broadcast over huge areas, some fell on the path. It says in verse 4, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Now, what's interesting is immediately after he tells this parable, Jesus sits down with the disciples, and they're like, um, "We don't get what you're saying. <laughs> we don't really understand what you're saying." And Jesus begins in this in this instance to break down what he was teaching. Now, we don't have these for all the parables, but we do for this one, and it gives us a glimpse about how do we study the rest of the parables. And if you jump down to verse 18, this is what Jesus says. Hear then the parable of the sower. This is talking about those along the path. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that has been sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. So they could get it. They could see that the birds were coming down, that the ground on the path was harder. The seed couldn't penetrate. The birds would come and eat it, and they'd be like, well, you got a free meal. The way Jesus described it is that there is very real opposition in the world that you and I deal with. And the main goal of this opposition is that the gospel that has the ability to bring us life be absolutely powerless within us. Now, as we look at these three scenarios, this particular one is 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 someone that really is not interested at all in the gospel for whatever reason. They have no interest whatsoever. And no matter how many times you tell them, no matter how many ways or illustrations you think that they're gonna get at this time, it really doesn't matter. There are a number of people in the world that they just they are never even gonna want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. It's a hard thing to understand, but it's there. And the way Jesus describes it is this is not just someone who has a hard heart. This is someone in which the enemy is literally pulling the desire out of them. Now that frightens me. That frightens me because we don't really have a defense against that. When the enemy's working in this way, you and I really have no way of fixing it. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can do, and yet every person is going to have to respond in some way at some point. For the seed that fell along the path, you need to understand, and what he's trying to show them is, there is a very active enemy to the gospel, and he is recruiting. That means, as we look through the parable of the sower... That means we have to ask ourselves, how does the enemy work to pull the gospel out of people's lives? And sometimes it is not the enemy. Sometimes we are the enemy. Are we the type of people, are we by the actions of our hands or by the posts on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else, our pictures that we put on Instagram, the things we promote, the things we talk about, the way that we show the gospel and how we live it out. Are we some that are showing that in an authentic way of knowing Christ? Or are we distorting it so that a person wants nothing to do with Christ because we've so distorted it? I think that also applies... And just a moment on another of his parables. The second place that the seed can fall is on rocky ground. Verse 5 says, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. I don't know what your yards are like, but when we, when we lived in our house before we live now, we lived on a hill and it would, when it would rain, literally would just take all the topsoil off the hill. We were on a hill in Red Bank. There's only like one hill in Red Bank and we lived on it. And so all of the soil would be gone. And the only thing that was underneath it was like, you know, chirp, which is like hard clay dirt with rock mixed in. And every spring I would get so excited because my yard would be full. I would be full of weeds, but it would be full. It was better than dirt, right? I mean, when you You're just happy that there's something green out there, and you didn't spray paint it. But every time it would get hot, everything would die, and all of a sudden, my yard would turn from a nice green to a nice brown, and it would just be dirt, and it would drive me crazy. And the problem that we had was that all the topsoil that gives you the nutrients for all of that to be able to grow had washed away over time. And so I needed to just bring in a ton of new, fresh dirt in order for it to be able to grow, but I just wasn't willing to do that. And so I endured this every single year. Now, every other place I've ever lived, about the first of the year, I'll go out and I'll spray all my weeds so they'll die in the yard so grass will grow, but not this place. I was like, if you've got some weeds and you want to get rid of them, bring it to my house, just put them right over there. Maybe they'll sprout. Maybe they'll stick around a little longer. I was just happy to have something green. The truth is you've got to have some soil that has some depth for those roots to go down deep. And so when it gets hot, they have something to draw from. Otherwise, they just have shallow roots and they don't have anything to to nourish the plant. If they don't have those deep roots and they just burn up and they wither away. This is what Jesus says about the thorns. He says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. So they are receptive to the gospel. And they understand it. They get what he's trying to say. He indeed bears fruit and yields. I'm sorry, I've dropped down to the good soil. On the rocky ground. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So they receive the gospel, but he has no root in himself and endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the, world, of the word, immediately he falls away. Folks, we... This is where I believe the majority of Christians are in America today. And one of the reasons that the majority of Christians in America are this way is because this is the way we have shared the gospel for decades. If you are hurting, if you need something, if you just want peace or comfort within your life, then what you need to do is ask Jesus to be your Savior. And when you do that, Jesus will come into your heart and he will fix your brokenness and he will solve your problems and you will no longer hurt or have problems. A few weeks ago, I wrote a blog, Will God Give You Something More Than You Can Handle? And it's common in churches to say, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? (laughs) Have you read any of the Bible?" I mean, any of it. I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, any of it. Have you read Jesus or Paul or anybody? Because when I read it, I'm like, I'm going to crush you. (laughs) You know, That's kind of what it's like. And and so as we look at this, the person that is on rocky ground is that person that has said, yes, I want to know Jesus, but life doesn't work out the way they thought it was going to. And whose fault is it? It's Jesus's because we told them that if they would ask Jesus into their heart, everything will take care of itself. as we've said, I think time and time again here, not to push people away from the gospel. Time and time again, God is going to test you. God is going to make life difficult. Everything's going to be going just great and you're going to be going, God, this is awesome. And then everything's going to be pulled out from under you. And it is in that moment that you will have to decide, is Jesus worth it? Or is he only worth it when things go well? And that's why we are seeing right now, across all spectrums, a decrease in the church. Now, I won't say we're seeing a decrease in those who know Christ, but we're seeing a decrease in those that have attended church because the world no longer rewards you for that. There are a lot of churches that are struggling to pay their mortgages because they built these enormous churches with incredibly wealthy people that attended, and they were attending those churches. Not all wealthy people are this way. I'm not trying to say if you're wealthy, you're not a good real Christian, but I'm saying many of our large churches built on the backs of wealthy business people are struggling because we found out now you can't get new customers to your business by going to church anymore. In fact, you may actually lose customers. One of the things we don't really talk about are these things that are happening in the church that are not healthy nor biblical, and one of them is that the church has been used for many years as a networking opportunity for business, and whenever it was popular to be a Christian, then that was a good business opportunity, but you really don't get a whole lot of benefit for going to church right now, do you? I mean, you get an awesome sermon. I mean, that goes without saying, and music, that's incredible, but... But no one's waiting to pat you on the back saying, you went to church today, good job. Right? No one's saying, you know who are really great people in the world? Christians. I mean, when's the last time you saw a news report that said that? So what we're seeing now is a transition, a shifting as our culture shifts. And as some of the things that we built up the church in an earlier age, we are seeing some fracturing that they, because they weren't really God-centered they were other-centered. And so we're seeing this type of soul to a great degree right now. Because, and this is who I believe this is for, he's talking about. Those who only follow God if he gives them what they want. It's easy to follow God when he gives you what you want. Just like my kids love me when I give them what, I, what they want. And when I say, no, they still love me technically, but not as much, right? Right? James 1 talks about this. this is, I have struggled with this my, my entire life as a Christian, and it's just been in the last few years that I have embraced it to truly understand how important it is. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A very real part, if you're struggling today, okay. if life is not what you thought it was going to be, if you are not just in the perfect place, in the perfect situation that you always thought you were going to be in, and you're just thinking, this is not what I I bargained for, I, I want you to know it is not an indication that God doesn't love you. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It is the fact that God is so enamored with you, He is drawing you to a deeper level of relationship that is only possible through hardship. Now, fortunately, I don't think God puts us in, you know, hardship forever. It's not that we're just always going to be miserable. I'm really close to Jesus because I am so miserable right now. That is really not the point I'm trying to make. But it is through struggling and suffering that we tend to grow because it is in times when we are not struggling that we do not see the need to grow. I'm good. Everything's good. Work's good. House is good. Family's good. I mean, friends are good, cars are good, everything's good. I think let's just keep doing what we're doing. And that, in and of itself, will drive you to a place of losing on the adventure that Christ is calling you to. The seed that fell on rocky ground are those that follow God when He gives them what they want. We try sometimes in the church to give everybody what they want, it never works. It just reminds me again that when Jesus had the opportunity and thousands of people are out there, and if me, if I go to a speaking opportunity, you know, because I don't get those very often, even my family doesn't really like me to talk, but if I go to one and thousands of people come, I'm like, do not screw this up, right? You know what it's like. You go, you're at work, and all of a sudden, whoever's your boss isn't there, and they're like, I need you to cover today for them. And you're like, yes, this is my chance. Jesus didn't do that. like ah ooh! look at all these people because what jesus knew is what is true today and that this category of people is a lot of those who claim to know christ i don't say that in judgment i say that and we need to address that that's what's happening in our world third area i'll get to that in a minute third area falls among the thorns. This is where I want to spend a little more time and I think is really more applicable for where a lot of us are. But I also want us to understand this parable in a little deeper sense as well. 13.7 says, Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. In other words, there's some good soil here. And the seed burrows down deep and the roots go down deep and the, the plant is nourished. You are nourished as a follower of Jesus. You're, you're doing, Everything's right. I mean, things are going well. You should be taken off, excited about your faith and you're growing. Things are happening. But then something else grows with you. It comes alongside of you. The thorns. Now, this is where Paul says, I prayed time and time again. I had a thorn in the flesh and I asked God to take it away and he didn't which is consistent really teaching in lots of parables of Jesus who says there's going to be thorns and there are going to be all kinds of tares that are going to come. That's another day, but there are all kinds of tares that are going to come and grow alongside of you. And the problem is that the things that we introduce into our lives or are introduced on, with, without us even wanting them to can choke out what God has done there. I see that often in men when they lose their jobs. There's something, about what, there, there's something that happens to a man when he loses a job that doesn't always happen to a woman. Sometimes it does, but I see it almost always with men, and that something in them withers. Because men derive a great amount of their identity from their work. That's why if you hate your job, you struggle with your identity. That's why if you haven't gotten to the place that you want to get to in your career, you struggle with your identity. Because men very much allow their identity to be determined by what they do, and you, there's really not much you do more than go to work. And when you, that is taken from you, and you did not want it to be, there is something in you that withers. You know, when we had the crisis, we, we are, are smart church, church planners here, not all church planners are smart we are we're smart here that's why we started a church during you know the midst of the Great Recession of two thousand and eight. It was wise planning, very strategic. We knew exactly what we were doing <laughs> But I sat in home after home of men who lost their jobs and our government tried to help and provided a safety net and so that you could get unemployment for an unspecified period of time. And It was based not on some baseline level of just pay- paying your bills. It was a percentage of what your income was before. So a lot of these men ended up just taking the check as long as they could until they stopped paying it because they couldn't find a job that paid as well as the unemployment check they were getting. And with every single one, I said, I don't care if you've got to take a job at McDonald's. Take it. And time and time again, those that decided, I'm going to just take this check. It's more than I would make at McDonald's, so I'm just going to keep it. something in them continu- continued to wither until they never recovered. You can live your life. And many things be going right. And something completely out of your control can come in and just kill it. Matthew thirteen twenty two says, this is what, how Jesus described it. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is what I think of as distracted believers. Distracted believers are short-term believers. We were talking with some of our kids over the week. I remember when I went to camp, and you guys have come back and had a great week and a great experience. And um, We were talking about this uh, last night at our house as well. One of the challenges when you're a student and you come back from one of these, you know, life-changing trips is that you go back to your not life-changing life after, right? It's like when you go on vacation and then you got to go back to work and you're like, oh, I feel like a million bucks. I can, I can conquer the world on vacation. You come back to work and you're like, oh, dead man walking. You know, that's how you feel. What I shared with some of our teens over this week was, listen, the, here's the thing. If the thing you're experiencing at camp is the music and the lights and the fun and the goofiness and the, and the food and having all these new friends. If that's the thing that means the most to you, then you will, over this next week or two, you'll see it just kind of your excitement will drain because we didn't bring any of that back with us. We don't get to go spend all our days, get up at six thirty in the morning and go eat whatever we want off the buffet and then go play games and then go do our tracks and then you know go hang out with our friends and play gaga ball or whatever and then go hear these great worship teams and great preaching and you know we don't get any of that here right <laughs> that was a joke thanks for not follow- thanks for not playing along i know how you really feel so anyways but on the other hand But on the other hand, if the thing that you get at camp is that I got to have an experience with Jesus, he spoke to me, he said something to me, well, that can last you for the rest of your life. I mean, that can literally, that does not have to dissipate. I've shared before my testimony, I I got saved, I, I don't know if I got saved or not, I I had a life-changing experience at Centrifuge when I was 15 years old. My mom will tell you I got saved today because that's when I got baptized. I'm not so sure. But there's also a there's a difference between an eight-year-old and a 15-year-old understanding faith. So I don't I don't really know. But I do know that when I was fifteen, I I was walking through the back part of the campus, no one was around, and I had come to camp saying God, I know the truth, but I don't live it. And I am miserable. <laughs> I'm one way at church, but at school, in order to fit in with people, I'm, I mean, my church friends would not even know me. And to be honest, they saw me at school. They did know. But as I walked back in that back part of the campus... I had a time where I just said, "Jesus, I," and I started my prayer like this, <clears throat> "Jesus, I don't know if you know who I am or not." So, I, even at fifteen, I wasn't that smart. But I, you know, I don't know if you even know who this is. But this is Mark Love. Um, I'm in South Carolina, but I'm from Knoxville. So, just to figure out which one I am. But, and I literally didn't say those exact words, but that was the, that was really what I did. I mean, that's really kind of how I opened my prayer. I just, because there was something that I was shifting from, I know what I'm supposed to do and believe to, I want to know Jesus and be changed forever by him. And so I don't remember anything that happened at Centrifuge to this day, but I walked as we've gone to this same campus, same campus is where I got saved. I, we've gone there the last two years. Both years I've walked back to that spot by myself and nothing else is going on. And it is as if that day was today. I remember it. It was a moment that I, it changed me forever. It didn't make me a perfect Christian forever. Just ask anybody. But it changed me forever. And I, will, I have taken that moment with me every day for 31 years. I can see it as if it were today. But I don't remember anything else we did at camp. I don't remember anything else we did at camp. Whenever you truly experience Christ, the world changes for you. The way you see the world changes. But the seed that is sown among thorns is incredibly difficult because that means that you can be right in a life changing, life transformation place within your life, and something can come alongside of you out of your control and choke it out. I call those distractions. If we do not have constantly our focus on walking and knowing Christ, walking with Christ and knowing Christ, we get distracted. I think it's interesting the number of articles and blogs talking about men shouldn't worship. I mean, we shouldn't expect men to sing in church. And some of you don't sing, so you're like, ooh, he didn't know I don't sing. So, I'm, But I'm not going to sing in church. And we talk about men who, you know what? We should just let them kind of sit there and just like bumps on a law. That's just where they are. Just accept them as they are. And I think, yeah, but I have been to a UT football game. I've been there. I know they can make noise with their mouth. I know they can jump up and down. I mean, they're not, they don't go to LSU, but they do go to UT, right? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding, Herman. Or Alabama. Yeah, at Alabama, they don't, you know, talk about thorns. No, I'm just kidding. But... <clears throat> That's like the worst of the worst right there. I mean, seriously. But, but when you know Christ, something changes in you. And you change in the way you see the world. And we get distracted. You know what You know what? my distraction is often? Entertainment. I love a good TV show. I love a good movie. And if I can catch it about five seasons in, but I've not seen any, but it's all five seasons are on Netflix, I'm like, yes, of course. This is awesome. You know what I'm not thinking about when I'm catching up on five seasons of whatever? I'm not thinking about my faith. I'm not thinking about Christ. And you're thinking, oh, but that's preacher talk. Nobody does that. Uh, yeah, they do. And what, this is what Jesus is calling us to. And this is why he says there is a, there's a gate that is wide. And many people take that gate. But it leads to destruction. And there's a narrow gate. And few people find it. But it leads to life in Christ. And the reality is, is we've got to decide what we're going to do with our lives. Among the thorns... We have to ask ourselves, what in my life right now is choking out my faith? Maybe you don't watch a lot of TV, but maybe it's which TV you choose to watch. Maybe it's who you tend to hang out with. And, and, and students, I, listen. Jesus says we are supposed to love all people and we're supposed to go and, and we are supposed to bridge the gap between God's kingdom and this world and we are not supposed to exclude anyone from that. We are not supposed to get saved and have a relationship with Christ and then say, I'm sorry, I can't hang out with you. You're not a Christian. I only hang out with my Christian folks now. We are, that is not the way Jesus taught us to live. However, the people that you surround yourself who are your closest circle of friends, they will influence you and they may be a thorn for you. Adults, that doesn't change when we grow up. So one of the worst things you can do is to One of the worst things a Christian can do for the gospel is to say, I'm a Christian now, I can't hang out with you. That is one of the worst things we can do to the gospel because that makes the gospel exclusive, not inclusive. However, we have to recognize that we are not God. We can be choked out, and we need to choose who we bring close around us. That's why a church community is so important, That's why not just coming to church, but investing in each other and not just in the programs at church, but saying, hey man, let's go to lunch. Let's go have coffee. Come over to our house. Let's go see a movie together. Those types of things are crucial because they build the relationship with people that can encourage your faith. Distracted believers are short-term believers. Distractions can be sports. Distractions can be Netflix. Distractions can be your job. Distractions can be some, a, a substance like drugs or alcohol. A, a distraction can be pornography. There's all kinds of distractions that while our heart wants to know Christ, the cares of this world and the things that our eyes see and go, ooh, that's good too, choke, choke out. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but we're running out of time here. Number four, the good soil. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30, which, by the way, he's not just trying to say here, some people are more productive as Christians than others. I mean, a 10-fold return on a planting is, like, huge. I mean, any farmer would be like, man, this is the best crop. This is like once-in-a-lifetime crop. I got tenfold. And what Jesus is saying is, oh, oh so some of you are going to get a hundredfold. Some of you are going to be 60. And, but I mean, even you that are you know, like the low producers, you're going to be like 30fold. When Jesus comes in, he magnifies our efforts and he does things in us we could never do on our own. So Jesus is no one saying, well, I really want to be the hundredfold, dude. He's saying, gosh, if you're the 30fold, dude, people, you'd be jumping up and down going, I cannot believe what God is doing with, through me. Then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. In Matthew thirteen twenty three, it says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, similar to the shallow soil, similar to the soil among thorns. He indeed bears fruit and yields. So Jesus is saying bearing fruit is important to know him and to follow him, and this person does. And in some, they're going to yield 100, in some 60, and in others, 30. You're going to yield fruit. And this is why Scripture tells us, if you want to know if somebody's a Christian, look at their fruit. What do they produce? Because a dead tree doesn't produce live fruit. So as we look at this, we have to ask a very difficult question, well, how how, how am I going to be good soil, right? Right? How do I become good soil? It's not, just, it's not just indication of some of you are going to make it into heaven and some of you aren't. But, but he's really trying to teach them that there is a receptiveness that makes a difference in your life. And the truth is, is you and I are not completely in control of our soil. As we look at, well, what, who is this person? It, it is literally the, the gospel grows in those who have been cultivated to accept it. And when you begin to understand that good soil needs to be cultivated, you begin to find that there is something within our lives and following Christ that we have to cultivate the soil that is growing within us. How do we do that? Some ways that happens is we remove distractions. It's like pulling up the rocks and pulling out the weeds. We remove the distractions, it sometimes means that we do teach the essentials. We understand what is the, script, what is the gospel and what, is, you know, what does it really look like to follow Christ. It means at times that we have to go listen to people who get it better than we do and ask questions rather than try to pretend that we have all the answers. I find people that are good soil are also people who have owned their brokenness I, I tell you I, I, I'm i not as big a user of social media as I used to be. One of the reasons is because I would post something and I had to see how many people liked it or retweeted it because I started on Twitter. I needed to know I've only gotten two retweets. What is what is wrong with you people? And I found that within me I wasn't just engaging with other people I was expecting them to feed my ego and so I just really had to, to get off and so I don't I don't do as much as I used to, but I do sometimes just kind of uh, stalk you people, and uh, not just you, um, I stalk everybody, so there you go, and um, I tell you, there, there is nothing that draws a more physical response from me than when I see a person proclaiming their brokenness to the world without owning it. Now, how do we do that? We proclaim our brokenness when we want people to feel sorry for us, but we don't do anything to fix it. We proclaim our brokenness when we write passive-aggressive tests, not texts or posts, and we say, you know what? I need all new friends. I don't know anybody here who wrote that. I'm not trying to pick anybody out. I need all new friends. None of my friends are caring for me at all. I'm like, okay, so... You literally have just alienated every friend you have. And no one really knows what happened or why, <laughs> what you're upset about, what your need is. You know, I, when someone will talk about, oh, I just, no one will reach out to me. Who are you reaching out to? Does anybody know what you're going through? I think one of the things that it, it, it takes to really know Christ is that you have to own your brokenness. Not hold your brokenness up like a trophy, like I'm, I've got a harder life than you do. But you own it and say, I am broken. I'm not going to cover it up. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I am broken, and I need Christ to heal that within me. That soil becomes cultivated. The soil is worked. Now we could stop here, and that would be fine. Let me ask you some questions real quick before we end. Number one, which soil are you? Which soil are you? Now that assumes that we are all one of these four soils. Only one. But I know myself. And there, are time, there, are, there is good soil in me. But there are also thorns. And there's some rocky ground in me too. And let's be honest, there are times that I, my heart is as hard as the path is. The gospel is not just about, you know what, you are perfectly receptive, you are the perfect vessel to receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what it is. The gospel works in the good soul of our lives, and then we have to take a time in order to determine what needs to be cultivated for it to continue to grow within us. What distractions need to be done away with? What hard-heartedness, what assumptions do I have because I grew up believing this, but it's not true. It's not biblical. It's not honoring to Christ. What do I need to do away with that I've completely accepted as truth? Which soil are you? Another question we have to ask is, well, who is the sower? So we focus on the soils, but there's a sower here. And If we only look at this, we can say easily, well, God's the sower, right? God's the sower. And yes, God does implant the gospel into us. And when the picture of a farmer who digs his hand liberally down into the bag of seed and casts it over a a wide area liberally demonstrates God's desire to share his love and his life with all of us. He's not stingy. It's not, it's not you know, back, uh, you know, June 16th, 1985, I gave Mark a shot and he didn't take it. You know, that's kind of modern farming. Here's my seed. Let's see what happens. That's not how God works. He liberally shares his love with us time and time again. At times when we're the path, at times when we're the rocky ground, at times when we've been choked up by thorns, and when we're good soil. But Scripture goes on to say, you know what? The reality is is that while he is the sower of the gospel, which means the Holy Spirit has to come alongside and make this alive in someone, also we are called alongside of him to sow also. This is exactly what your whole week was about, the mission, sharing your testimony and the gospel with all those people around you. Now we sow. We don't have the. We're not the Holy Spirit, but we sow the gospel. Are we sowing the gospel liberally as Jesus does? An easy way to answer that is: Was the last time you shared your faith with anyone? That's a good test. Well, it's been a while, or it was yesterday, but that was the first time in years. Well, that's a good trend to start on. Are we sharing it liberally? <laughs> I'd also ask you, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, then you are sowing. You may not know what you're sowing, but you are sowing. People are looking at you, and if you claim to be a Christian, what you say on Facebook matters, what you say on Twitter matters, what you talk about around the The snack area at work matters. What you do after hours matters. What you do privately in your own time when you think nobody is watching matters. That all matters because you're sowing something and you and I never want to become the thorns that squash someone else's faith. Because the greatest damage is done by Christians who don't take this seriously. That's Jesse Duplantis, who's going to buy a $54 million jet so he can be close to Jesus in heaven. You know how many people will reject Christianity because of that kind of crap? It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how many mission trips we take. It doesn't matter how many times we invest in them and rescue people. It doesn't matter how much we invest in missions around the world. It doesn't matter how much we are in our brokenness crying out to Christ to heal us and to heal our city. One dude gets on national television saying, God's told me to come be with him in heaven and buy a $54 million. You're supposed to buy me a $54 million jet. We'll never compete with that. And he was going to be judged for that. He is not a follower of Jesus even though he calls himself a pastor. So I, I am telling you we have to be diligent to make sure we are not the thorn squashing the faith of other people. The last thing I want to leave with you is in all of this, there's a a part of this that you you have no control over, and there's a part of this that you do. What can you do to prepare or cultivate your own soil? Are you open? Are you ready for God to do something in you? Are you spending time regularly with Him? Are you sacrificing the things that you know are not honoring, those distractions that choke out the faith in us? What can you do to cultivate your soil and the soil of those people around you? Next week, we're going to move on to another parable, and uh, we'll probably reference this one again. I hope that as you take this away, you will understand not just, well, some people are going to get into heaven and some people aren't, but instead, we will look at this, that we have a responsibility in this process, both in our own lives and the lives of others, and we have the opportunity to be that good soil. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the testimonies we've heard today, for your love, and incredible ways you care for us. I thank you for forgiving us when we are the thorns or we're on rocky ground. Father, I pray that you would show us not only how to follow you, but this would be real in our lives. Pray for our students who have had significant experiences in their life this week. I pray that you would continue that and you would foster that growth and that they would never forget the experience they've had with you. As adults, I pray that you would help us to cultivate the soil within our own children's lives, that by our example, by how we talk about faith and how we live it out every single day, that we are cultivating that in their lives so that they are good soil. Father, I pray that for all of us in here that have some brokenness within us, we we all know what it is. Maybe we're hiding it. Maybe we're pretending it's not there. We thank you for your healing, but let us own it. And let us reach out to you, the only one who can truly heal it and make us well. Father, give us those people within our lives that we can demonstrate and we can liberally sow the gospel as well. So that we will partner with you in this harvest. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.